You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Welcome to the first episode of a special four-part series of CRST, the podcast that dives into ways in which you can differentiate your cataract and refractive laser surgery practice from others in your local market. In this episode, we're discussing keys to the successful planning of cataract and refractive surgery. We'll be focusing on how to deliver great outcomes and set your practice up for creating a great patient experience. I'm Dr. Lisa Fulner from Maryland, and joining me are the esteemed Dr. Walter Secundo from Germany and Liam Trim from Paris, France. It's exciting to share this discussion with clinicians from other parts of the world. Thank you, Walter and Liam, for joining me to talk about creating a truly unique cataract and refractive patient experience. I'd love it if you guys could tell me a little bit about your practices and your particular interests. Hello, um, I'm very happy to participate at this podcast with both of you. I'm uh, Liam Trin. I'm a French ophthalmologist. I'm working in the public hospital, Quinzevin Hospital in Paris, France, and I'm specialized in uh, refractive surgery and cataract surgery. And we have the chance in uh, our hospital to, to have all the, the platform uh, uh, with the connected platform uh, dice and uh, I'm happy to, to share this experience with you. Yeah, Walter Secundo, I'm a, a professor chairman of the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Marburg, just, just sort of just an hour drive for Frankfurt for those you know who haven't been to Germany yet, but everyone knows Frankfurt International Airport. And it's a fairly large department. We've got 20 doctors, uh, um, six faculty members, and 75 people on staff. Um, I'm uh, trained in corneal refractive surgery, vitro-retinal surgery, glaucoma surgery, and ocular pathology. But my main interest is actually um, cataract and refractive surgery. It's about two-thirds of my work. Um, and um, I, I think, you know, as time will go on, uh, I will tell you the way we did it because uh, I work at the institution, which is sort of a little unique in this country. It's a university hospital. But at the same time, it's a privatized uh, university. Um, so uh, I have a dual function as a professor, uh, as a state official, and the ch- chairman and the head surgeon of a, of a department in a private setting. And I think it also helps, uh, not only hinders, it helps, uh, particularly when you deal with not just with patients, but also with clients, because I consider the refractive patients clients, whereas other patients, these are patients to me. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's wonderful. It's, it's really exciting to um, have the opportunity to work with both of you. Um, I'm in private practice um, outside Baltimore, Maryland. I do uh, comprehensive ophthalmology, but I focus on cataract refractive and glaucoma surgery. I have a very large uh, dry eye and ocular surface practice as well. Um, like you guys, I you know value all of my patients, but understand that uh, some of these premium uh, cataract patients and refractive patients, you know, really need a little bit different finesse from, um, you know, our general population. So I'm looking forward to learning from you guys today about how you do that and how, you know, you've stood out in your community and represented uh, your practices in a way that, you know, brings patients in and creates, you know, a wonderful experience that just improves your reputation. So let's jump right in. We know that being a great surgeon isn't enough to have a successful cataract and refractive practice in this day and age of social media, rapid communication, and high expectations. The patient experience starts uh, the minute the patient engages our offices. 
How do you guys uh, create an exceptional patient experience? Is there something special that you do to set the stage for an exceptional preoperative patient experience in your offices? Patients write me an email in general, and then I answer them, all of them personally, before my secretary send them a convocation. I focus my consultation by spending time with them, discussing with them about their expectations, their job, and giving them explanations myself. I want all of them feeling they are special by creating a personal link with them during the consultation. I like refractive surgery because we can discuss with people trying to, to know them. And after, when we, the day of the surgery, the nurses are always surprised thinking that each patient is a friend of mine. So that's what I want for the experience. They, they feel they are special. In your, in your uh, university setting, Dr. Secundo, how does that work there? It's entirely different. Let's start with this. Um, first, I understood a couple of years ago, well, almost 10 years ago, that it doesn't matter, you know, how well-known you are in the uh, scientific community and more or less sort of everyone knows me because I was the developer of Smile and, you know, when published on Smile and everyone knew I did Smile, but I realized that being, uh, I work in a town, we have 88,000 inhabitants here of those 30,000 students. It's just a university town. So we're talking about 50,000 people who live there. And yet, you know, we do over 600 refractive surgeries. Uh, so how does it come? And it comes that at such certain point, I realized that as you said in your introduction at the time of, of uh, media and, and, and Google and whatever, you've got to be present on the internet. You've got to be present on all the social platforms and you just can't do it on your own. And this was, uh, for me, an, an idea to create a network, uh, which called Smile Eyes. Um, and uh, it's basically a network of 13 um, clinics throughout Germany, Austria, and even one clinic in Russia. But now, you know, we sort of, you know, take back a little bit, you know, because of the certain reasons. Um, but it's a large network, and it gives us not only the possibility to conduct multi-center study, to meet, you know, to have benchmarking, but also to be present on the internet, you know. So if you Google, if you, if you, if you look for a, a laser refractive surgery nearby one of our location because of the Google ads, and so we will come up. It would never work if I would be just on my own because my own budget would not be enough for it. And it's a very important driving force. We hire, you know, our network. We hire a professional company that looks at advertisement. You know, how do you do it in a professional way? And this is, is actually for the benefit of every one of us. And now Smile Eyes is the second largest group in Germany. So no one can sort of walk by and not notice us. And it was a different way, you know, just some 10 years ago. So this was for me the way to separate refractive surgery, pure refractive surgery, laser refractive surgery, but also lens refractive surgery for standard cataract procedures. Whereas standard cataract procedures, they're usually referred by local ophthalmologists. In this country, you know, we have so-called non-surgical and surgical ophthalmologists, ophthalmologists who do not perform surgery. They refer either, either to their colleagues who do perform surgery or to the hospital. And it's about 2,000 procedures we do every year, but not just only me, but I have, you know, members of staff who also uh, perform cataract surgery. And this is a more streamlined and, and perhaps less sophisticated as a workup we would do for our refractive surgeries and refractive candidates.
Thank you. You know, I think my experience is different than both of yours in private practice. I have a lot of pressure in my community. Um, I have three other practices within five miles. Um, I have Wilmer Eye Institute, which is a famous academic uh, institution with great surgeons. And I have two other large practices and we're all within one strip of about five to seven miles. So, you know, patients have a lot of choices about where they're going to go. And we focus a lot on uh, really making that experience exceptional from the beginning to the end. Um, and I do a lot of things like Dr. Trin said on a very personal level. Most of my personal contact is after surgery. I actually call every single patient after surgery um, to check in on them, which can make for a very long day and night. Um, but, you know, beforehand, do um, either of you, uh, once the patient has initiated contact with your practice, do you send out any information on your practice? Do you introduce the practice to the patients? Um, being in Europe, do either of you guys have experience with the eye guide from Zeiss? And, and how do you use that in your practice if you do? So we actually, my practice is uh, one of the uh, first practices in the United States to have exposure. And I'm actually one of the... Um, people helping to uh, establish and grow and make this app for patients. Um, and basically it's sort of the final digital uh, link to our patients that it allows patients to be introduced to your practice, to learn about all of the things that you do in your practice. It actually gives them an introduction where you can control the information. You can pull information from your website about cataracts, cataract surgery, the surgeries you provide, it actually is something that helps patients, um, you know, join their family members into the experience, join their family members into the surgical plan, because you can use the app for that. Um, and, you know, it, 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 you can have videos of yourself talking to the patient before they come in. So in my setting, we're looking for things like that, that allow me to separate myself from my colleagues that also do excellent surgery. You know, there's not a practice in town that doesn't do exceptional surgery. What makes me special is that, like Dr. Trin said, that sort of personal contact. And, you know, for me, the app is going to be this great link that allows me to not only personally introduce myself to the, pra to the practice to the patients and the videos of the practitioners in my office, but also connect with them every step of the way along their surgical experience including drop reminders, appointment reminders, checklists for pre and post-operative planning and care, um, as well as giving them that information that traditionally we've sent out in emails or in links in emails that patients can learn about what their options are. So for me, that's a real differentiator you know, from my colleagues. Eventually, everybody, I believe, should and will have it. Um, but, you know, those are the kind of things that I think, at least in a private practice setting like mine, you know, we need to stand out even before that patient comes in. Because oftentimes, like Dr. Secundo says, the optometrist is referring the patient in. And in my town, and I can give you an example, yesterday, patient came in with two referral papers, one for my practice and one for Wilmer. And the question is, how does that patient decide where they're going to go? And hopefully, you know, like you said, marketing is extremely important, but also, you know, having that experience when they call on the phone or, you know, even before they walk in the door, learning about my practice. Do either of you guys do anything like that? 
Well, I, I, I see every patient prior to surgery. And with refractive patients, I do informed consent myself, also for legal reasons, whereas for standard cataract, the rectum is whatever, I have residents in training, I mean, they take care of it. Um, but uh, frankly speaking, I do not see the patients after the surgery, but I tell them, if everything goes well, you're not going to see me, you're going to see my optometrist. Uh, because I just figure out, fortunately, you know, complications are extremely rare, but if there's anything not perfect, I'll see them. So they know it. But in that way, it saves my time uh, because, you know, certain, everyone has a certain amount of time. And it, depending upon what, what you do and how many, I do about one and a half thousand surgeries per year. On top of each year, a department, you know, have residents and, 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 and teach students. So you have to sort yourself to certain tasks, but it works. It has to be, you know, have to be sure that you have very good people on your staff. Unfortunately, I do have, you know, some exceptionally good optometrists um, and, and, and it works well. And we've been, you know, very, very successful in that way. And people do know, I mean, if they come to a larger hospital, like our hospital is probably a little bit less personal, but it's the highest terms of, you know, I can always tell them there's no one in the world who has a longer experience with smile than me, which is true. <laughs> uh, but uh, at the end of the day, it's, of course, you know, how we treat them. Uh, but I just cannot allow myself this degree of a personal attachment to every patient because I just don't have enough time. But I think the way you, you discuss it is the, the, the only way to survive in a private practice. Totally agree with you, uh, Lisa. From my experience, in Paris, is a very competitive town. There are about 90 or 100 surgeons in Paris, all very good, no problem. And to differentiate from them, uh, the first, like I said before, was the human contact. I know I like joking with patients, talking with them. They enjoy a lot. And after their experience, they share it on the social media, Google review, they write a review on my YouTube channel. And then after, people uh, are searching for surgeons in Paris and they read my reviews. But the reviews uh, came from the human experience first. And after, when the people read the reviews, they are already convinced. So the experience begin in Google reviews, but the Google reviews are fed by the human experience. So I use best of both world, human and digital world. You know, I think that's such a great point, Liam, because, uh, you know, we get caught up in thinking that we have to do everything digitally because this, this world likes digital, it's efficient, it's, it's rapid, but I love the way that you, uh, you know, combine both that personal and digital experience and that one feeds the other. I think that's something we can't lose track of, you know, along the way. And I think, you know, balancing that and being able to streamline our, our practices um, digitally while maintaining that personal contact is really going to be the key to, to all of our successes. So let's, let's move um, on to the next stage of the patient experience. So now we've got them in our office by whatever means, whether it's marketing or referral from the outside or a social media referral. And we all have our own unique way of working them up. Um, it, you know, and I think that some people, you know, do all of their evaluation in one day. So they see the patient, they do the IOL calcs all in one day. Some people self, se separate it. Um, 
Liam, walk me through, you know, your initial evaluation. At what point does the patient see you and how much information along that pathway is the patient given before they see you and uh, what data has been collected be- before they reach your chair? The, um, the patients see first the orthoptist, my assistant, who begin by uh, uh, talking with them for the, um, uh, for the observation. Um, they begin the refraction with the autocarotometry, the autorefractometry, uh, the visual acuity, and they realize all the examinations, so uh, topography, OCT, and then after the patients uh, come to see me to sit down in my in my room. Great. So, do you have the um, all of the IOL master data at that point, where you're able to say to the patient, "Here's what I recommend for cataract surgery," or you have your Pentacam and all of these things available to you that tells you, you know, you're a great candidate for uh, smile, or I think we should do PRK. I don't think you're a great, uh, you know, LASIK candidate. Do you do you do that all on that initial visit? You know, either for cataracts or refractive. My assistants know me very well. Uh, they worked with me for long years ago, so they know me. Uh, all I, I want to, to do for each patient. They, so when they talk to a patient, they examine them. They know if it's cataract indication or refractive indication. And if it's cataract indication, they do the IOL Master 700 before sending them on forum, uh, uh, doing the topography first. So when the patient comes, uh, the patient has already all the examinations I need. If it's FACIC IOL, uh, the, the assistant know and uh, uh, do all the, the examinations for this. So for me, it's very, very easy. I have all informations on my computer, on forum, and I'm going to check everything, uh, the corneal astigmatism, uh, the topography, the uh, the Yelmaster, and I can choose the the right IOL for the patient during the discussion when I talk with the the patient. And do you show them anything? You know, uh, any of the data that you've collected that you know helps you explain to them the choices that you're making. This is a 2022 uh, uh, consultation, so they have all the they can see the the screen computer and with forum. It's uh, very uh, useful for pedagogy because in forum, uh, now we can scroll and see the topography provided by the IOL Master 700. They can see the axis of uh, the astigmatism and explain them. And during the explanation, I have lots of videos, uh, photos uh, to explain them. So they, they are looking on the, on the computer while I'm talking with them. Perfect. I imagine it's very different for you, uh, Walter. Oh yes, uh, well first actually you'd be surprised how less uh, uh, knowledgeable are our patients in the majority of cases. The best example, uh, I recently did the surgery refractive lens exchange on uh, uh, my um, brother's wife and uh, uh, she even has some, some medical background and obviously I spent at least 20 minutes explaining what we're going to do and, you know, and, and she signed informed consent and the day before surgery my brother phoned me and said, listen Walter, you're going to exchange your lens, aren't you? I said, of course. Well, because she says you're going to put an additional lens. Unless you realize, you know, how much goes in and how much goes out. And, uh, and today, another experience that is I, I operated on an older lady, you know, real, real hard, hard rock hard cataract, 
came over just to thank me because she's my neighbor. And she said to me, well, but how is actually the new lens fixed in the eye? And, and I remember exp explaining here, you know, we leave the capsule back. So there's one thing again for us to understand. We need to make it as simple as possible. And unfortunately, they need to sign everything because at the end of the day, they don't recall, they don't understand anything, even if you show pictures. There are exceptions, those. And in our setting, I mean, we have two different settings in different clinics. If someone comes in for cataract surgery, it's a different setting as if someone comes for refractive surgery, whether it's a lens or, or, or laser refractive surgery. Again, let's start with refractive surgery. It's pretty streamlined. I mean, uh, we never do everything at once in refractive surgery because I believe that people do need some time to think of it just for legal reasons, but also something I'd like to have. So they come for counseling. And counseling means it's usually a half an hour to 35 minutes appointment. They get a standard uh, workout by optometrist, which includes pentacam, autorefractometry, um, 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 rough manifest refraction, but rough manifest refraction, just, just to know where they are. And obviously a very a good history. That's what's important. You know, history of glasses, also, you know, they have rheumatoid arthritis, whatever. You know what I'm talking about. And then I look, and then they come to me, I look at the slit lamp. I actually do look um, on using an undilated pupil at, at least at the optic nerve and the macula to make sure it's fine. And then I explain them what I believe, you know, is the best surgery for them. And as you know, the majority come in, they usually want to have laser surgery, whatever it is. And, and at the end of the day, at least one third end up having lens surgery. But this is the usual way. Uh, then I tell them, listen, you don't feel be pushed in anything else. You know, you've got plenty of time to think of. If you wish, we can make an appointment for a full exam, which will take at least four to five hours. Um, but if you don't want to do it, you know, just give us a, a call. And in that way, at least I feel I do not push anyone into this decision because usually these are the eyes that are 2020 eyes. Um, in the majority of cases, though, I mean, they decided to proceed and have an appointment. And this is where what Liam said, you know, we need to remind them because quite often you realize you already forgot it. Okay, and we have a service, you know, taking the take care of it. A different story was cataract surgery. If they come for cataract surgery, there usually is a cataract, and then in our system, it is a huge difference whether they are on compulsory insurance or have a private insurance, and whether we'd like to go over co-payment or not. Okay, it's similar to US. We do have a co-payment law here. So uh, then we have a full workup. Uh, also including, you know, IUL master, uh, um, um, corneal topography, um, explanation, what is there and what are the possibilities of the lenses. Obviously, before going to doctor's office, they already answer a questionnaire. So, you know, you know, how many miles do they drive, you know, what, what, are, what are their hobbies and so on. And then... Then sometimes it's a gut feeling. Obviously, we're obliged to tell patients that they're multifocal lenses, those lenses, but sometimes you really feel like mm, uh, they're not going to be able to afford it. And you just go straight in head and, and they get the monofocal lens, which is covered fully by the insurance. But at least they know there's a possibility. In private patients who are usually you know, much better off and you know, have also a wealthier background, uh, we discuss all possibilities which we believe are the best for them. It could be 
multifocal, could be toric, it could be EDOF lens, whatever. And then it's up to them to decide if they would like, you know, to have this extra, you know, some special lens or not. So that's great. You know, I, I hear from both of you some of the key things that are important for us to build that confidence um, in our patients and make them feel like not only are they confident, but we are competent. So we use our technology to demonstrate to them, you know, why we're making the choices that we're making. And then, you know, like you said, Walter, we give them the space um, to understand and ask more questions and maybe talk over with family or or you definitely want people to make the decision either to have cataract or, you know, a refractive procedure because they know it's the right thing for them and they know that you're the right surgeon for them. And that's super important. And I agree with you. I, I separate my cataract um, evaluations um, and I do my refractive. Traditionally, I've done my refractive um, evaluations on the same, not the same day as surgery, but all in one day. But the reason for that, you know, refractive surgery patients tend to be younger. They don't, they traditionally tended not to have ocular surface disease that I needed to treat. That's changed a lot. So, you know, the way I used to think about a refractive evaluation was, you know, this is a young person, I'll be able to tell right away, we'll have our conversation and we'll schedule surgery. Not so much like that now. It's starting to look a little bit more like my cataract population where I'm very keyed into looking for that ocular surface disease that can lead me down the wrong path. And so I'm really um, started in refractive patients, you know, depending, you know, heavily on looking at my placido rings and my topography and obviously the lid margin and uh, my bombing glands and all these things that I really reserved for looking at my cataract patients in detail and higher order aberrations and all these things that can suggest that this patient has ocular surface disease that I either need to really treat or have a very frank conversation with the patient and tell them, you know, this is going to be a chronic problem or it may get worse after this, you know, refractive procedure. So, you know, that, you know, way I do my evaluations for my refractive patients has changed, you know, in this modern era of digital devices and masks and all of those things. And for my cataract patients, you know, I've really separated it because of, I'm such a fanatic about ocular surface disease and I highly depend on my topography and my placido rings and looking at higher order aberrations. And the reason why patients come to my office is because not only their personal experience, which I provide, but my outcomes. And I think what I see, you know, and when I get other people's patients is that my outcomes, you know, nobody's perfect, but they're as spot on as I personally can make them. And some of that has to do with sending them out to, you know, optimize their ocular surface before we do our measurements. And to allow them the time to read over material about their options and not to feel like I'm giving them the pressure sale, but I'm actually advising them on what I think is good for their eyes, their lifestyle, um, you know, and their situation. And so for me, you know, I separated a, a lot for cataract surgery and, you know, maybe a little bit more now in refractive surgery than I did before. So they're, again, like you guys said, they're very different people, but they're starting to look more similar from an ocular surface per perspective. And so that's how we do it in our practice. And I think, you know, 
in 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 my uh, in my setting of private practice, it, you know, part of what differentiates me is my obsession with my outcomes and making sure patients understand by showing them their placido rings and their irregular topography, so they know why I'm so invested in making sure their ocular surface is good before I do any kind of procedure or make any kind of lens decisions sometimes for them. Well, you know, with cataract surgery, I mean, ocular surface is important for everything, but in standard cataract surgery with modern, very small incisions, I think it's much more forgiving in terms of ocular surface, unless you go into, you know, multifocal lens implantation, whatever. Um, it's entirely different for laser refractive surgery. And we basically discovered in a more stronger sense, as, as you pointed out, when we picked up on and, and you know, and started to do Presbyon. And uh, we're one of the very first in this country to start with Press Beyond. We do it a slightly different way, and as is taught by, by, by Dan, and we have larger zones, we have our own nomograms. We have basically, as you said, you're sort of, you know, you love looking at the ocular surface. Uh, I'm very much into nomograms, you know, I've got nomograms for everything. <laughs> um, but there, it's not just the nomograms. It's, it's also the ocular surface because obviously someone who was who wants to have refractive surgery for presbyopia is already presbyopic. And this is where we all have our problems with the surface of the eye. Uh, this is where the time is important and the time will come along with this procedure um, cost-wise also, you know, so this is why presbyond is the most expensive procedure offer. Albeit, you know, it's not, it's not smile, it's, it's LASIK, but still. Um, but this is, you know, where it really comes into place and we've got everything, you know, we not just check Shearman, BOT, but we have those machines that do show you the ocular surface and osmolality and all this business. But frankly speaking, for refractive su surgery, yes. For standard cataract surgery, I don't do it. For standard cataract surgery, it's a monofocal lens. I just want to make sure they don't have, you know, a huge meibomian gland disease. Uh, in those cases, I would probably put in doxycycline. Um, um, and then we would proceed because it is just more forgiving. Yeah. You know, that kind of leads me to, to my next, uh, you know, thought along this pathway of patient experience through our office. You know, now, you know, we've gotten to the point where we've analyzed their corneas, whether they're refractive or cataract patients. You know, we've decided they're a good candidate or they're not a good candidate for a procedure. You know, presumably we understand their expectations. You know, we're the experts. You know, there are several conversations which we sometimes find ourselves in. You know, the first conversation is we can't meet your expectations because you have something in your cornea or other part of your visual system that doesn't make you a candidate. And here's why. We have to have the conversation um, that says, you know, you want this treatment, but I think this other treatment is better. I know you read about this one, but I think this one's better. And then lastly, we have to talk to them about spending money. And the way we do that can really differentiate that from our colleagues. I got a patient yesterday who went to one of my colleagues who sent him all this information, not about cataract surgery, but about all the different lens in information. And he felt really pressured and he had beautiful, regular astigmatism that, you know, any surgeon would love to correct, but the patient really didn't want it corrected. And he 
came to me saying, you know, I felt like I was pressured and, you know, he just wanted to make money because of COVID off of me and all of these things. So talk to me now and explain to our listeners, you know, how you have those delicate sometimes conversations about when a patient's not a candidate, when you're steering them in a different direction, maybe they're not a candidate for SMILE, they have to have PRK. And also when you have to talk to them about money, because I think those are three really valuable topics that can separate us from our colleagues and build that trust and confidence that can, you know, build our word of mouth, our social media presence. For the first uh, conversation, when uh, we have to explain that um, a technique is not possible, for example, like you said, uh, this morning I had exactly the same case. A patient came for a smile and it was not possible and was just for PRK. And I show him on the computer the pattern of uh, asymmetric bow tie explaining it's important the, the, the our pedagogic mission uh, to explain why, what is the risk and people understand very well. And they say, okay, I don't want to take any risk for my eyes. My eyes are too important for me. So when we speak about risk, they understand very, very, very quickly. And uh, so it's very easy. We, we talk about the percentage, the risk, the risk of ectasia. So it's easy for me, this type of conversation, uh, after three minutes, they totally agree and they choose a PRK after we convince them. So the first point. Uh, for the second point of the, um, the, the price, of uh, the technologies for a refractive laser or for uh, the lens. Um, they already know the price on my website. Everything is clearly uh, written. So now they go on internet and they know the price before they coming to see me. And for the lens, the different prices of the lens, I explained them the different, the monofocal, and I said them in France, it's free. Then I explain the toric and I show them the, the advantages. And then I explain them the bifocal, multifocal, but the inconvenience. And then after the trifocal, and then they understand uh, each time the value of the lens. And after I explain them the difference of the, the, the price. So it's natural. And after we explain them each advantages, it's logical, like they paid for a phone, for a smartphone, they know that the 64 gigabits is uh, cheaper than the 100 uh, gigabits. It's their consumers and we have to explain them. You know, I think you said something really important um, and that is the value of the lens. But I think more importantly is conveying to the patient the value of the work we put into you know, ensuring that they have a great outcome, whether or not it's, you know, because in this country, at least there's such a competition for prices for refractive surgery. You know, at one point it was down to like $250 for LASIK surgery. And, you know, you, people were devaluating their worth as a surgeon, I believe. And I don't apologize in my practice for charging money for different refractive options, whether it's lens-based or, you know, cornea-based, because I know that the value of my experience, the value of the work I put into ensuring their outcomes 
is worth that. And patients want to hear that. It's not just, okay, this lens isn't covered by your insurance, so I'm going to charge you this. It's, this is what you've expressed to me are your expectations and your needs. And here are the things that I have to do to ensure that. And that's valuable. And, you know, I kind of always use the the fancy car. I'm like, you know, you wouldn't buy, uh, you know, a, a Lamborghini and put cheap tires on it. And you wouldn't not change the oil and you wouldn't do all these things. And if you want this kind of vision, these are the things we need to do. And this is, you know, this is the expense that, you know, I don't say expense, but this is the value you're getting. And I think using that word value, not only for the lens, but for our work, you know, is, is so important because, you know, we don't want to come across as used car salesmen, but what we do is valuable. It, it's, it's incredibly valuable. And we operate um, on such a high level to ensure those outcomes that I think we need to convey that value to the patient. A good friend of mine, Bertram Meyer from Cologne, he uh, has a great saying, and I mean, he mentioned it several meetings. I love it because he says, we are not cheap doctors. We are good doctors. <laughs> and I really like it. <laughs> you, you, might, you must have heard it, Liam. Um, uh, but I do differentiate again between refractive surgeons, or uh, sorry, refractive. Uh, I differentiate between refractive candidates and cataract and pure cataract candidates. Refractive candidates who come over to me, they already know roughly how much it's going to cost because we've always been sort of very premium and probably one of the most expensive <laughs> refractive surgeons in this country, but they also know the track. I've been one of the top 30 for the last 12, 13 years. Uh, so it helps. Um, so I don't have to have a discussion on the price for refractive surgery. I tell them what I believe is the best. And sometimes if it goes the way, like Liam just said, you know, where they want to have smile, usually they come to me because they want to have smile. And I said, no, listen, uh, PRK or LASIK is a better procedure. And believe me, it's much cheaper than smile. But I tell you, it's the better procedure for you because I look for the best and the, and the less risk, riskier procedure for you and not for the way where I can make most out of money. And I understand it. But apart from this, I don't have this big discussion uh, the prices are told them by my staff, you know, prior, uh, they see me and I think those who cannot afford it either do not come or they do not come uh, for the full examination after the counseling. Um, in this country, we also have the very sort of cheap chains that go by numbers, have very little work up uh, and actually do a pretty good job, but do usually, usually like microkeratome, LASIK and, 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 and PRK. And then we have the premium, which are two or three very large groups, and one of them is, is the smile eyes. So uh, um, they have rough, a rough idea. It is entirely different with cataract patients, because cataract patients in our country are under what called a compulsory or statutory insurance. It's a little bit like in France, where it's everything sort of for free. Okay, it's, um, They're not used to, to spend some extra money. And... Uh, this is where I go entirely different way. All the folks, not necessarily, you know, sort of very rich. And if, if they're not private, okay? Because for a private patient, it doesn't matter. They just have to pay more for the lens. The rest is the same. But those who are on statutory insurance, they really have to have a co-payment, which is about 700 euros per eye. On top of it, the lens. Well, first, what we do, we separate the lens from the price of the surgery. So this is, look, 
this is what my staff and the doctor, that what we will do for you, that costs you whatever, three and a half thousand euros for both eyes. And this is the cost of the lens and depending upon what lens, what manufacturer. So you will pay two bills exactly so you know what, what is the value of the lens, what is the value of, uh, of the medical service you achieve. And then the other thing, particularly if I'm feeling like, you know, these are probably not the very wealthy people, I start like, look, there's several possibilities. Yes, it's going to cost you a lot of money, but I think it's worth it because, and then I give them the courses like, you know, you'll get rid of glasses and at the end of the day, you know how much you spent on your glasses. And believe me, I mean, I mean a good pair of spectacles, it's at least in this country, 1,200 euros straight away. And you change them like every four to five years because the glasses are scratched. And then all of a sudden say, okay, well, then a co-payment of 1,400 euros is not that much because, you know, I would spend it on my glasses anyway. Um, this is how I approach it. But like I try to sit in their chairs. Oh, wow, that's a lot, lot of money. But instead of saying, look, this is how much it's cost. You either take it or leave it. This is the way I do with refractive, <laughs> refractive uh, candidates. Uh, so uh, this is how we operate. But in, in reality, yes, probably not very different than the other parts of the world. We checked our number of multifocal lenses, about 6% of our cataract surgery volume. It's not more than that. And okay, now with new EDOFs, it, it sort of climb, climbs up a little bit and Torrey go quite well, but in total, it's definitely not over 10% of the regular cataract population, which means in terms 90% will get a very good monofocal lens in a normal cataract surgery. Thank you. I really wanted to summarize um, in the end, you know, the, the patient experience really doesn't end with, you know, once we've decided what we're going to do with the patient, but it really follows through the whole surgical procedure and then what happens to that patient um, after surgery. And Walter, you, you know, you don't see your patients. Most of them are seen by your optometrist, but you know, there are some things that can differentiate uh, the way we do things um, that you can share, I think, with your patients uh, through the surgical procedure and afterwards. In, in, in our office, we're fully digital. And so I tell patients that, you know, we, we do everything digitally. We do all our, you know, lens planning and refractive planning digitally. Everything is digitally transferred to the operating room. Um, you know, I, I use Veracity for my IOL planning um, and all that information is transferred to all my digital solutions in the operating room. And, um, you know, I tell that to patients. I say, you know, the, the chance for, min, you know, minimum human error um, is very small in, in this situation because we have digital solutions. And I explain that to them because that's really a differentiator, right? We don't do anything on paper. And I always give this example to the patients where I operated on my best friend's husband. Um, and I went to the operating room and my surgical coordinator is required to submit a paper that orders the lenses to the operating room. And we were confirming the lens and they called out a power of 12.5. And I knew the patient, it was my friend's husband. I said, he's not myopic. And I had for a long time been asking them not to look at the paper to confirm the lens, but to use my iPad where I was pulling veracity up. And the patient I knew did not need a 12 and a half. And I went to his chart and sure enough, he needed a 21.5. Yes, but only because I knew the patient 
did he not end up? And it was just a really strong message to the OR that he needed, that we need to do this digitally, where there's less human error introduced into this process. And I share that with patients. I share that, yes, everyone does a timeout, but we have the opportunity to do this digitally. So there's no manual, you know, application where we're worrying that someone is doing something, you know, inadvertently because of human error. And I think, you know, that's in that process of trying to differentiate ourselves, bringing it full circle around. Are there any processes that you want to share quickly that you do during that surgical planning or post-operative period that um, differentiate you and could help our listeners, you know, really make their practices stand out? I, I, I totally agree with you, uh, Lisa. Um, personally, I use the Forum EQ Workplace, the, the digital uh, planning tool um, on, a, on a cloud, and uh, I could not go back anymore now to work on other things. Uh, because it's so easy, so fast, simple, and reliable, like you said, for the example of your friend. Uh, and it's totally dematerialized. No USB key. I'm, I'm a geek. I'm really a geek for every uh, technology. Uh, and so this type of planning tool changed my life as a surgeon. And uh, now uh, I, I come to the operating room, collecting the data on the computer, um, sending it to the Callisto of the microscope to assist me with augmented reality in the Oculus. I feel I'm Iron Man. It's very, the, the, today it's a, a, a great pleasure for me and for the patient, for the experience for the patient. The patient sees the technology and it increases the precision of the treatment with this pleasure. So it's impossible to, to go back, to it, it's uh, for me. Uh, and I you know, that, that needs to be part of our marketing, right? Because we are doing something that many people don't do. And that is digitally connecting everything from the preoperative to the surgical planning, to the surgery, to ensuring our outcomes and sharing that with patients um, in our marketing and in our conversation is a real differentiator. And not only does it work for us because it saves us so much time and it streamlines it, it gives us confidence, but it also is impressive um, to those patients who now aren't worried that they're going to get the wrong lens in their eye or the wrong setting on the laser or something, you know, because it's, it's more, you know, automated now. Of course, there's human oversight. We want to always balance that digital with human factor, right? Because we don't ignore that digital information. We still analyze it, make sure it's accurate and that we agree with it, right? For those of us who use Aura, you know, not, you don't just... 100% go with what Aura says, you know, you might use your own, um, you know, decision making to, to tweak it one way or the other. So I think those are important messages that we need to give our patients. Anything that you'd like to quickly add, Walter, before we close it up? No, basically the same. I mean, we also use Forum and, uh, and uh, uh, Callisto, but uh, I still rely on what we, we call it in German, the four eyes principle. So it's always two people looking at every single lens. Uh, checking data for, for, for laser refractive surgery, whatever you do. So, for instance, you know, the patient scheduled for uh, intraocular surgery already on the surgical plan, there's written, you know, whatever, Mr. Blah, 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 and plus 21 diopters and the, and the brand of lens. And then they check in the, on the forum and they'll look at the IL, IL master prior to surgery and only then. And then the nurse, either I myself or nurse goes, 
get the lens out of the uh, um, cupboard and shows it to me. And only if I say, yes, the lens is unpacked. And so far, I mean, we've been doing quite good. It was only one single time. Actually, I never managed to put a wrong lens, but one of my uh, um, faculty members, she had a mistake once. She put a plus lens. No, she, she, yes, she put a plus lens where it was meant to be minus. It was like plus two, but it was meant minus two. And from there on, we started <laughs> to mark the minus, you know, the those between minus 10 and zero. So they have a highlight and mark the minus sign. <laughs> so it's not going to never will happen again. Uh, this is the only case I still remember. We actually realized it like two hours later, phone the patient, asked the patient to come back and exchange the lens for a plus two. Yeah. We learn from our mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. I really wish I had more time to talk to you guys. There's so much to learn from both of you. It was a really informative discussion, and I want to thank you guys for joining us today from across the pond. Um, I hope our listeners will stay tuned for the second episode in this series, which is sure to provide additional tips and tools for differentiating your practice during the cataract surgery procedure itself. So thank you very much for giving us your time today. We really appreciate it.